Welcome to the Daily Bolster. Each day we welcome transformational executives to share their real-world experiences and practical advice about scaling yourself, your team, and your business. Hi, welcome to the Daily Bolster. I'm Matt Blumberg. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Bolster. Uh, with me today, going in deep with Charlie O'Donnell. Uh, Charlie has been an active member of the New York startup community for about 20 years. Uh, he currently runs Brooklyn Bridge Ventures and he has a reputation for being one of the most uh, accessible and I would say kind of best known early stage investors in New York. Um, I have had the pleasure of knowing Charlie for 18 of those years, something like that. Um, so Charlie, thank you for joining the Daily Bolster. Excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Why don't we start um, with uh, you giving everyone a super quick uh, career trajectory for you? Because I'm not sure everyone knows about the first few steps. Uh, and it's really, I always think it's really interesting to see how someone's career evolves, especially in, uh, in your business. Yeah. I, I'm one of the few folks that actually has come from the big institutional money that backs a lot of these venture capital firms. So I started life at the General Motors Pension Fund, investing in mostly limited partnership investments in venture capital and private equity funds. Then Union Square Ventures pitched us. Uh, we decided that the fund was too small for the bite sizes that we normally do, although that wasn't my opinion at the time. I pounded the table as hard as I could and didn't get us in. Um, so I reached out to Fred. I said, what does a junior analyst do? He said, you want to come and find out? And that resulted in a, uh, a little short of two-year stint at Union Square Ventures as their first analyst. Um, I jumped over to the startup side. I, I did a really brief stint as a product manager before trying uh, to start my own company in 2007, around the time that uh, you were uh, not only an angel investor, but my landlord. Uh, you were gracious enough to let us hang out in... Uh, uh, a roving set of empty desks from conference room to cubby to, you know, closet, wherever you could stick us. And we were deeply, deeply appreciative for that. Well, it's um, because we, you know, we loved your name, right? We were return path and you were path 101. So that, exactly. that kind of said a lot about it. So yeah, we had, we had to yeah. be there. All right. So um, you, went from, you went from LP mm -hmm. further downstream to VC, further downstream to founder, and then what? Realized that uh, being a founder is really hard. And I, I think there are a lot of VCs that, you know, or younger, you know, non-partner non folks that come up with a lot of ideas and see a lot of ideas and think like, oh, I could do that or I should start this. And um, to be honest, I probably wasn't that great at it. Uh, learned a ton and uh, wound up back on the VC side. Uh, right around the time that um, Foursquare raised their initial round of capital, I sort of helped put that together. And uh, it was sort of a post-financial crash um, resurgence of New York. And people realized that you needed to be on the ground here in the ecosystem. And I had been building a lot of community stuff. And so I was the um, helped open up first round capitals, New York office, uh, in 2009, spent a couple of years there, uh, great team, great place to realize that if you didn't want to work on a team that you probably should be on your own. Cause, um, uh, it was, a, it was a really great crew of folks. And I, I realized I just didn't want to have to ask anybody 
to um, backstop my decisions or to convince anybody else to, to write a check. I sort of wanted to live and die by my own sword. And so I took the solo GP route. I raised a small fund. I've been doing that now for a little over 10 years. And uh, we're sort of on the tail end of fund three here. And Brooklyn Bridge Ventures is now invested in about a hundred companies. Well, the portfolio is a hundred. That's tremendous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, about, uh, you know, about nine or 10 deals a year. Okay. Yeah, it adds up over time. And when you're doing early stage, they tend to stay around for a long time too. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah. Not as many as I would like, but uh, yeah, definitely. So um, I'm curious, uh, as you sort of think about your journey, when you left first round, mm -hmm. what was your decision about, hey, do I start my own firm? Uh, do I stay here at first round and, you know, hang out and push to be partner? Or do I go join another big firm? Do I call Fred back and try to you know, create a new level at USV that's between associate and partner. You must have had a bunch of those, um, a bunch of those thoughts. How, how did you land on being an entrepreneur in the VC landscape, which is tough? Yeah, I, I think the thing that people don't realize about venture is that opportunities are are kind of few and far between, and and different firms are are set up to be shaped in different ways, right? And so when I joined first round capital, there was sort of already four partners at the firm. There were three existing like principal level people, all of whom were vying for what might've been one or two partnership positions. So it was a, it was a pretty crowded house. In fact, it, some of the folks when I joined um, were fairly vexed that I, uh, you know, joined the, the, the sort of competition, but I, but I wasn't necessarily there to compete. I was there to sort of um, help them set up that New York office and get some feet on the ground and help introduce them to the community. So I was actually um, only stick, supposed to stick around there for a year and uh, you know worked my way to an extended stay. But uh, at some point it was obvious that there was just sort of no room at the inn and it wasn't clear that it was a great fit. Um, you know, it, uh, I, I had more of sort of an entrepreneurial like you know, want to be the person with my name on the door or, you know, uh, that, that, that kind of thing and wanted to be able to speak for the firm. And so I did actually have some conversations with some other firms and, you know, look, if I, my fundraising wasn't successful or I couldn't do it on my own, I would have been happy to be, you know, a cog in somebody else's machine because I really did want to work with early stage funds. And, uh, but I figured I, I owed myself a shot at that point. Um, I wasn't ready to concede and, um, you know, to be partner number two at somebody else's name capital. Right. Yeah, well, um, congratulations uh, now, 10 plus years in the past on getting something up and running. So that is not easy. Um, when I think about the arc of your career, it is so interesting to me that I don't know that I have ever met someone that's been an LP, a GP, and a, um, a CEO. Um, I'm sure I could come up with someone, but it's not a ton, um, or at least an institutional LP. And then uh, right. the LP side is the rare one, actually. That's the rare one, yeah. So um, so I'd love to ask you a couple questions about the learnings and sort of applying learnings. So let's actually go back to GM. What's something that you learned as an institutional LP that you applied to being a GP? So 
it's definitely a portfolio approach. You know, I, I, that is kind of the way that I look at everything. I, I was a GM actually for eight years uh, because it was not only the four years uh, full-time right after college, but I was an intern. I was a high school intern. Uh, my high school had this sort of special program that um, in senior year, once we'd applied to our colleges, they kind of kicked us out. So, um, so I was there for a long time. I mean, that day that I cleaned out my office, I had a lot of junk to bring home. And they are um, a really research, thoughtful, model-driven shop that, that has to live with the assets, right? It's not like an investment banking firm where you, you, you broker the deal and then you know somebody else deals with it for a while, right? So they have a really, really long-term view. And we were analyzing venture funds and really trying to figure out like, well, well, what was it that drove your return? And are you taking more risks than other people? And what's your hit rate and, and what kind of valuations and, and trying to uh, apply this really data-driven approach. And, and so I do that now. Um, it's something I recommend to any new fund investor. I always tell them like, you have to build the fantasy cash flow model. And that is what every LP analyst builds when they first start out is, is how many deals am I doing? What's the valuation? What's the mortality rate? Uh, what, what's my expectation of ending value? And how does that cash play out, right? It's very easy to say, well, you know, I'm going to hit this many doubles, triples, home runs, and, and it takes nine years to build a company. Well, do that math and see what the IRR is. And it's probably not as high as you think it is. And, and sort of one of these levers has to, has to give. And so I'm always taking a portfolio approach, not just to the asset allocation, but to the decision-making. I mean, I'll go back to this one instance of, um, you know, it's the, the Instagram bet uh, when Thrive Capital slash Josh Kushner, I, I forget how institutionally it was at the time, did the, the $500 million valuation bet on Instagram sort of the three days before it sold and, and got a lot of sort of street cred for that. My first reaction is if somebody was raising a fund and said, 30 times I'm going to invest in $500 million companies with no revenue and only one logical acquirer. What do you think that fund distribution would play out as, right? Like would that, would that probably be a good fund strategy to do not just fund one, but fund two, fund three over time? Like probably not. That's the no, sort one's of one gonna, of the, no one's going to put their money in that. No, no, right? So that, that's how I sort of think about these decisions. It's like, could I make this bet 30 times and have it play out as a good portfolio? And, and that's kind of where my thinking is. That's great. Yeah, you'd have to name your, your firm like Lucky Capital. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so, uh, so now let's move downstream again. So now you work at Union Square Ventures, then you decide you're going to start a company or an operating founder CEO of Path 101. What's the lesson you brought with you from the experience as kind of an analyst associated to VC into being um, a startup founder? Man, not enough, to be honest. Um, I, I think not having been at a startup company and, uh, you know, I, I, there was a, I took a one-year product management role at one of their portfolio companies but um, it was sort of an already existing company. And so I didn't get to see the beginnings of that firm. And I didn't 
really appreciate how hard that was. I had never seen a company attempt to find product market fit. And I, I think those are the kinds of things I wished I had. Um, so I don't think I was actually particularly well prepared uh, for that time. Plus we weren't, I mean, we, we did early on do um, an investment in Delicious when it was like Josh Schachter in a folding chair. But like, other than that, for the most part, we were investing in existing companies, um, mostly when I was there, founders that had done this before. Um, and so um, it, it wasn't really a great training ground. It was a great training ground, um, I think, to just be an investor. I mean, Brad and Fred are two of the most thoughtful people uh, that I've ever worked with before. But in terms of um, starting a company, yeah, I, I, I kind of walked into it um, pretty green, I think. So now let's bounce the other way. So now you, you are an entrepreneur. You have the business building experience. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, or there were things about it that worked, but overall, you know, it didn't end up um, end up uh, lasting too too long. Um, what do you What did you take from that experience, not just into your time at First Round, but really into your time at Brooklyn Bridge? Like, how did the experience of being an, a software entrepreneur, an internet entrepreneur, shape the way you invest, the way you work with the founders in your portfolio? Yeah, for sure. So there was a lot I learned about. Um, team dynamics, um, but the one thing I think I was probably best with at, at Path 101 was, was hiring. I mean, I, I wound up hiring um, as my co-founder, Alex Lyons, who's now a GP at Notation, uh, absolutely terrific CTO uh, for me, and uh, Hillary Mason, who is now a founder and angel investor and one of the top data scientists in New York and sort of, you know, had been doing, you know, AI content generation years before it became like the next hottest thing. And, and so I was like particularly good at, at picking out great people to work with. Um, but I also realized that it's not just about making individual hires, it's building a team and sort of setting a team dynamic and, and making sure that um, people felt like they were bought in, um, that there was a good feedback mechanism. And, um, you know, so, so I spend a lot of time with founders thinking about sort of early hires, uh, dealing with founder conflicts and, um, and, and that difference between like, you know, just reminding founders like, hey, you own X percentage of this company, this employee that you just hired, like doesn't, like you guys are not, as aligned as you might think you are. And, um, and at the end of the day, it's, it's your vision and you need to communicate that. And so there's a lot of that like early team dynamic that uh, I, I sort of bring in from that early time period. You probably have, you're probably indexed pretty long on founder empathy too. Um, I mean, it's a tough journey. Um, you know, VCs that have never sat in the seat can be great at, at being investors and advisors, but there's got to be something different about having sat in the seat. Yeah, for sure. And, and it's funny because I think if any of the portfolio company founders that I've backed are listening, like, I don't know, some some of them, I think, would would say strong yes on the empathy thing. Some of them probably not. Um, because I, I also just realized, like, how hard it is and where the bar is. And 
I'm also just really direct. And um, there are some, one of the biggest lessons I learned is that like very few people are willing to have very direct conversations with you. I remember this one time I sat down with, with Steve Messer, um, who is one of the most direct, I mean, Steve will say anything. At any, one of the most direct ever. <laughs> right. And, you know, I was raising money and I was sort of pitching him slash getting advice and, and it was a difficult time period. And, and you know, he, he said a few things that was like, oh, why don't you do this, this, and this? And why don't you cut this or whatever? And he, he cut right to the core of probably what I should have been doing. And it just seemed like really dramatic and abrasive. And I, I walked away from that conversation thinking, wow, this guy's kind of a jerk, you know? And, and, and over time, and, and Steve and I have become friends and we spent a lot of time cycling, uh, you know, we sort of become cycling buddies. And I realized like, no, he was, he was just like absolutely right and probably gave me some of the most useful advice, but it was just incredibly difficult to hear. Um, and I think, look, I, I've now been in this asset class for 20 years, and I think I'm still probably not half as good as I need to be at delivering some of that that really difficult um, advice. And it's something that I continue to work on. But um, delivering bad news doesn't come naturally to just about anybody. Right. Uh, right. whether it's advice or saying no, when someone pitches you, like, it's just like, it's just hard. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And and I think like, I think the no's when somebody is pitching you, um, those are easier. Those are much easier because you could say like, Hey, I, I, I could be wrong, but you know, I'm not going to get there on this, you know, kind of here's why. When you have to deliver bad advice to somebody that you've bet on, where you're basically like, I liked this idea and thought it was good, but your team has not executed. And so here we are, right? right? So, so th this, this was good, you didn't get there, is a much harder conversation than like, I don't think this is good, but I could be wrong. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. So um, I'm guessing people who listen to this know who, Fred and Brad are at USB and know who Josh is at first round and Chris and whoever else. Uh, what was it like working with each of them, you know, not, not at the beginning of their journeys, but pretty early on in, in their, in the, in the most recent stage of their journeys. Um, you know, people I, think I, USB, I, USB is now seven or eight partners. It, you know, its brand is very different than it was in 2004 or five when it was Fred, Brad, and you and a couple of other people. Yeah. So I think the things that I, first of all, they're all just like super different people. Um, Josh is very much a builder of things and you know, really likes to get in, sort of understand how things work. Um, I think Fred is very close to that, not as a sort of builder entrepreneur, you know, he is not the firm building type and, and you know, sort of almost famously is one of the few really successful VCs who has not been on the entrepreneurial side, but he's he's certainly curious about things on that level and how that interplay works and is a is a very details guy. Um, and 
Brad is a really kind of academic, like big picture thinker. That is the standard for sure. Yeah. And, you know, know, it's actually interesting because like, you know, Brad and Fred, I I never got to experience USV as the sort of full four partner or five partner, whatever they are now. It was, you know, I was working and uh, as the the analyst or associate or whatever I was, and it was Brad and Fred, and they complemented each other really, really well. Like the I don't think Brad gets enough credit for the origin of the thesis of that firm because you you don't have Union Square Ventures without the interplay between the two of them. Um, I'm not so sure that, like, I think Josh built a team of the best players that he could find that match um, a strategy that he came up with. Um, And it's funny, I've never really thought about this. I'm sort of thinking about the fly. I'm not so sure, and Josh might feel differently, how much they are compliments to Josh. Although I will say when Josh first started out, he's fairly young and he he co-founded the firm with Howard Morgan, who had a ton of experience. And so Howard is like, the guy that brought the internet to Philly, basically. And so, you know, um, I think Howard was very much a mentor to Josh in the tech world sort of early on. But I think over time, you know, Josh had a good idea of what he wanted first round to be um, and, and found the best team to execute on that, uh, but weren't necessarily picking out people who were like, you know, I know I'm not good at this, therefore right. I'm going to go and, and find somebody else. Um, lots of different, lots of different about, successful models. Well, well, that's exactly what I was going to say. Is that like, you know, um, I, I think you have to have strategies that sort of match who you have. And that's why both of those firms have been successful with very different approaches. Right. All right. So now we're in uh, early 2023 and a late winter, early spring. Um, what does the world of early stage investing look like right now? And what do you think is going to happen to it in the coming year? So, look, I think the first check investing world is just going to look much more like it did and sort of call it, you know, 2017, 18, 19, you know, kind of thing. Um, we're not crazy town, but you know, not um, you know deals are deals are getting done. I mean, I have have just participated in you know I've said yes to a couple of deals where um, they will uh, won't take a ton of time to fundraise, and there are good stories, and they're, they're they're good founders, and you know, so people are writing checks. That's that's you know. The, the problem is in the later stage, the bigger check firms that may have um, overhang in their existing portfolio, where they're looking at their portfolio going, you know, hey, um, you know, we, we've got some holes punched in this thing. We um, have some valuation challenges. And, and when's our fund come up for the next fundraise? And that has made them very skittish about writing checks. They have to figure out who they need to support. And there are some firms going, hey, barn a miracle, I don't see how our LPs back us for another fund, right? Um, which is a real issue. 
Um, so, you know, whether it's bridges or A's or B's or whatever, I, I think that that world is going to be sort of fairly slow for the rest of the year. Um, and it's also driven by the fact that like some of these folks um, have an existing portfolio that in any other normalized market would have gotten out into the public markets. And I just don't think there's going to be, frankly, any public market in 2023. Right. I there won't be a yeah. public market. There, there'll be fewer exits and the exits will be small. Right. Right. So, so you're looking at, you know, 2024 for the beginnings of the exit market to sort of start opening up. Um, and, and do, you, do you think it's going to, so it's interesting, you know, the um, uh, markets can get pulled from the top or pushed from the bottom. And, um, uh, you know, when the exit market starts to open up again, that makes everybody feel good about um, opening the purse strings. But the other thing you said that's an interesting dynamic, and we're seeing this with Bolster Ventures too, is the first check um, is still open for business, right. Uh, right? Because the first check doesn't have to worry about macro. You're, you're backing companies that are in build mode and you're, right. you know, all in they're raising a million bucks or a million and a half bucks or something or less. Um, and it's usually unpriced now. So, um, you know, you can see how there'd be pull from the top when exits start opening up. But all these companies that have been getting first check for the last six months, nine months, 12 months, by the time you get to the back half of this year, a bunch of them will have succeeded and will be ready for their first institutional money too, or bigger institutional money. Right, right, for sure. And and those companies like, or the checks you're writing now, who knows what the 18 to 24 month timeline is going to be. Now, that's, that's, you know, something that worry about next year, but we, yeah. you know, um, the thing I have to remind companies, and I think VCs need to remember this too, is you can't cut your way to success. I mean, at some point you have to invest to grow. And I was on a call the other day where, you know, um, some of the other VCs around the table were sort of saying, well, you know, we should have a, a, a below low case. And I was like, if we don't hit this low case, no one's funding this company. Right. Yeah. I don't know what the point of, of, of cutting even more than we have because, because, you know, what's going to happen is the market will open up and there will be companies that will have succeeded despite not being heavily resourced. And those are going to be the first ones out the door. Right. And you can't be a company that has been growing 10 or 20% annually and think like someone's going to write me a big series A check at the end and, and pat me on the back for just lasting. Like that's not enough. They need to see that this still has like the kind of growth potential that can, you know, return a fund, um, you know, so, yeah. so people, which by the way, increasing the chance that this thing is going to be a zero. You sort of have to keep driving as you're going off the cliff. Yeah, so I think at the later stages, people are saying about this year, like, oh, flat is the new up or something like that. I think at the early stages, it's not that. It's, you know, up is the new up a lot or something. Right, right, uh, right. Yeah, well, that is that's uh, that is great advice. You have to keep investing to get somewhere, for sure. Uh, all right, so you started Brooklyn Bridge Ventures in what year? 2012. The first money came into the fund in September of 2012. All right, so you're just over 10 years. and What's next for you? So the companies that I invest in, I, I stay active about the first two years of the company's life. I mean, I'm happy to hop on a call with companies I invested in eight years ago, but, but realistically, there's somebody who wrote a bigger check after me who's sort of taking the helm and on the board and all of that sort of stuff. 
So the deals I do now will take me into 2025 for my activity level. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of a, an interesting milestone because that puts me 20 years in this asset class. And I've been thinking a lot about what that means and what it has been like to do this job from the ages of kind of 25 to 45, roughly. And, and I'm a very different person now than I was at 25. I'm now married. I have a, You're a beautiful, dad. Yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm a dad of an absolutely beautiful, smart, like terrific little girl um, and uh, who has been on many board calls. I mean, she started out life 80 days in the NICU and I got three term sheets out while I was in the NICU, which I think is, I'm pretty sure is a venture record. Uh, I don't know who, who captures those kinds of things, but, um, and, you know, I, I think it's probably not realistic for me to do my job the way I've been doing it from the period from 45 to 65. Uh, and it's a couple things. Most people sort of at this time period in, in my life do one of two things in venture. They either go later, um, so they don't have to worry about turning over every rock and seeing if you're two people on a PowerPoint is a thing, they can sort of wait. And uh, it, it really shrinks the opportunity set. It really makes sourcing uh, taking up a lot less time. And, um, you know, that's just, to be honest, just not fun for me. Like I, I like, I like being the first check. I like dealing with entrepreneurs at that stage. Um, or they build a firm frankly, and, you know, sort of like we were talking about first round capital, where there's how many analysts or principal level type people and partner support teams and, and, and all of this sort of stuff. And you really got to want to be an entrepreneur and a company builder to do that, um, even if it's still sort of on the smaller scale. Um, and, and managing teams is just not something that's, that's really interesting or compelling to me. Um, I've never wanted to sort of hand off the deal flow to an analyst. So I've kind of come to the conclusion that like, um, this is probably a good time for, you know, uh, Brooklyn Bridge Ventures deal doing days, uh, the new deals anyway, to come to an end. Um, I will have put um, three funds to work, uh, a little short of $40 million uh, across 100 companies. And um, I've still got a lot of work ahead of me to help shepherd those companies to their series A and beyond and exits and, and all of that sort of stuff. And that's going to take up the vast majority of my time for the, for the next couple of years. But um, on the deal doing side, you know, there's a whole new crop of um, really hardworking, incredibly intelligent and focused um, younger folks who, who have the bandwidth to do this. And, and there's been, a ton of specialization, right? The, you look at the kinds of things I do, right? Like where, oh, okay, I have a newsletter and I do some events and, you know, do some other stuff and I help founders, whatever. Well, yeah, but then you, you've got folks like, uh, you know, Harry Stebbings who does the 20 minute VC and uh, the 20 minute VC is, is almost a company in and of itself. And he's got a team working on it and he, you know, um, or, somebody who writes a newsletter knows all the growth hacks and has a hundred thousand followers or whatever. It's like for each aspect of the way that I've done this, to be honest, I could probably find some 27 year old who's doing only that thing, right. And, and doing it 10 X better than when I started. Um, and, and not only that is 
purely focused on AI or enterprise SaaS or, or what have you, and is doing a super deep dive and is, is probably the first, the best port of call for, for the founder in, in that stage. I mean, it's now incredibly competitive. Um, and I think I probably would get much more enjoyment out of helping to share what I've learned with that generation uh, versus competing against them, <laughs> to be honest. So I don't know if I'll end up getting into some, you know, uh, investor education stuff or community. I mean, I, I, I've always really liked, um, you know, running events and passing on that wisdom. Um, in fact, we do this series called um, New to VC, where we take existing partners at VC firms and and share the really nitty gritty of you know um, best practices on being a board member and goal setting and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, I'll, I'll probably do some of that. Um, and and I'm also just thinking about like making the world a better place for my daughter um, and, and and my family. And so there's a bunch of things that I am sort of noodling around from an impact perspective. Um, I just read. A Billion Americans, um, really, really great book from Matt Iglesias. And uh, one of the things he was talking about was um, sort of population growth-centered uh, uh, policy. And, mm. and how, how do you make it just easier and less expensive to have kids, uh, for one? I mean, that was a big aspect of it. And I think about that a lot. Um, you know, I'm very, very fortunate that we can afford childcare and, and that we have flexible jobs. And, and uh, you know, we make it far too hard for, for folks to be able to, to grow families, um, especially in cities. And so that's, that's just an area I'm super curious about what I can do if given a 20-year time horizon to do it. So that's... That's in my limited amounts of spare time while I still have a full portfolio of companies. It's a little bit where my uh, my head is at. Yeah, and I mean, look, it's definitely going to be big news um, when you announce this publicly, and we'll, we'll you know put this podcast out around then so you can control the timing. Yeah. But it's certainly going to be big news for the New York tech scene. I think what people don't necessarily realize is you're going to be Brooklyn Bridge Ventures for the next 10 years, uh, <laughs> right? Because the companies, you may not be doing new deals, but you're still doing follow-ons and the companies you invest in this year are going to have, uh, you know, a long life and, and you're going to be there with them. But, yeah. uh, but I'm not getting out of the venture business for quite a long right. time. I'm getting out of the new checks business. Right. Uh, but even that's going to be going to be pretty big news in New York. There's no question about it. Yeah. And I, I, I think one thing that I'm, I'm, pretty proud of, to be honest, is I, I do think that, you know, some of the early community building work that I put in, you know, I, I see remnants of it. Um, and, and you look, we have this fantastic sort of meetup and gathering culture here. And, and there was a time where there were like, literally two things to go to uh the next ny events that i put together and scott heiferman's new york tech meetup and and that that was that was kind of it um and so um i i feel incredibly proud of um you know whatever my little part in in helping to build the community here was um and not i also so, feel not like so little. not so little <laughs> you know and um and I also feel good that like, that, you know, should I stop writing 
you know, new first time checks that there's plenty of other people to pitch and there's plenty of really uh, smart folks, um, even folks who are not in New York. I mean, that's that's one thing is like really changed a lot um, is, you know, people, everyone is willing to do a New York deal and uh, and everybody pretty much has a New York deal and loves coming here. You look at any of the top names in the Valley and they, they're all coming through here or, you know, some of the folks from bigger funds have second apartments here. And, um, you know, so there's no shortage of, of check writers. That's for sure. And that, that was a trend pre-pandemic, but, you know, now that 90% of that work can be done on Zoom, it, it's clearly opened things up. So, sure. All right, so uh, I like to end these with uh, with a speed round of one question, but given you and your background, I'm gonna do two questions. Okay. First one is one piece of advice for uh, a new uh, VC or someone who's thinking about getting into the early stage VC business. Optimize or just come up with a reason why someone would want to meet you and spend time with you that doesn't have to be, that is not about the check. Great. And now the thing I ask everyone who's on here, one piece of advice for founders, for CEOs um, about scaling their business, scaling themselves as a leader, scaling their team, scaling their board, a piece of advice for founder about scaling. First of all, um, Create a, like, act like an adult company from day one, create a plan, create a financial plan. I mean, that's one of the things I learned from you. I'll never forget the, hearing about how you wrote an HR policy that included a seven-year sabbatical, sort of a couple of weeks or months into starting, you know, a, a return path. And I, and I said to myself at the time that when I heard that, I was like, I'll bet you that there is an increased chance of survival for seven years when founders make seven-year actual plans and policies. And, and I've seen just too many companies just try and imagine that they're like waiting for some time where things are going to get more serious or more, you know, um, uh, organized. And, and there isn't, like, you have to do that. You, and the earlier you start doing it, the easier decisions will be, the easier collaborations will be. So yeah, take it seriously from day one. All right. That's a great place to end. Charlie, thank you for being on the Daily Bolster. Good to talk to you. Congratulations on your decision uh, and, uh, and good luck. I'm, I'm curious and excited to see what comes next for you. So am I. Thanks for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Bolster, the new way to find the right executives. We supercharge startup growth by matching CEOs with transformational executives, mentors, and board members without the hassle of traditional talent sourcing. Start searching for free at bolster.com.